All right, kids ages three to pre-K can head down to Holy Cross Kids Worship. Um, Ann Marin is in the back. She's our coordinator for Holy Cross Kids. If you're new to Holy Cross, if you've got a child in that area, she would love to meet you and uh, help you transition your kids to that if you want to take advantage of that. Uh, for the rest of you, if you've got a Bible with you, turn it to the book of Romans. It's in the New Testament. If you don't have a Bible with you, the, the passage, as always, is in your order of worship. If you don't own a Bible, we have a bunch on the back table. Please take one, either now or on your way out. Uh, or if you just have it on your device, you can turn it any way. It's good to have it in front of you, especially this week. It's going to be good to have it in front of you, please. Uh, so you hear that Rick isn't making this stuff up, okay? Now, I said last week, if you were here, that every worldview, whether that worldview is, um, you know, uh, nationalism or uh, some religious state, Buddhism, Islam, Christianity, uh, any worldview answers a few questions, right? Where did we come from? What's wrong? How does it get fixed? And where are we heading? Right? And uh, one of those, what is wrong, is what the, the, the author of this letter, a guy by the name of Paul, is seeking to answer in the first three chapters of this letter. That answer, what is wrong, will be crucial for us as we continue this series in Romans that we're calling Foundations, that we are now in, in the fourth uh, Sunday of. Now, before I get to our passage today, I need to lay out a little bit of a proviso. 35 to 40 minutes, okay, some of you will chuckle at that, but 35 to 40 minutes um, is nowhere near enough time frame to engage with what this passage mentions in any kind of thorough way. Because of that, misunderstandings, oversimplifications, and offenses are likely. My intention, as always, uh, if, if you've been here any amount of time, you know this, is to follow the purpose of the passage, to believe that the author has something to tell us, that every little thing in there uh, that could lead us off in a rabbit trail, um, that it may not be the best thing for us to do. We need to get at what he's trying to communicate. And so that's what we're going to try and do this morning. My hope is that uh, that will help us through some of those perils, but I do not assume it will avoid all of them. My purpose is to help us see what the Bible says, not presume to be able to understand anyone's experience. Okay? In light of that, if you have your place in Romans 1, would you stand in honor of God's word? That's what we do here. We're going to be reading verses 24 to 32 as we do so. Let me remind us quickly that this is God's word to us. Even in our confusion and sometimes our being confronted with something we don't want to hear, it's God's word to us. And it's meant for our good. Let's hear it in that way. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and their men likewise gave up natural relations with women, were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men, receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. 
And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is God's word given so that we might flourish. Would you pray with me? Lord, we are needy here this morning, and no one more so than the one who prays now. Lord, would you speak to our hearts? Would you pull away the veils that we tend to put in front so that we don't hear from you, whether we're Christians or not? For we do not like to be confronted with who we are. We want to pretend, every one of us. But you, by your grace, will not let us do so. Because so long as we pretend, we will never know what it means to be fully loved or fully known. So, Lord, give us grace to receive that this morning. Forgive us of our wrongs. Lord, would you let everything that is of Christ and his work come to the forefront? Let everything else fall away. For you alone, Jesus, hold the words of eternal life. So, speak for your servants. Listen now. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Have a seat. Now, while those words are still lingering, um, let me remind us of where we are for sake of context, because it's going to be super helpful, right? This letter was written by a guy named Paul. Some of you know that. Um, Others of you don't. Uh, Paul was an early Christian leader. He was uh, incredibly zealous. Before he became a Christian, he was super moral, really religious, and a violent opponent of Christianity. Maybe you didn't realize that. Like, most of the New Testament was written by somebody who was violently opposed to Christianity. But then he came to encounter Jesus, and he became a promoter of the faith that he was persecuting. He's writing this letter to explain the message he preaches to this congregation in Rome so they'll help him promoting the faith through planting new churches in Western Europe. In fact, it's, it's kind of his way of saying, um, here's, what I'm, here's what I'm proclaiming, uh, and so now can you give me some support so I can go proclaim it in other places, right? And he begins this whole letter by talking about how the gospel, the central message of Christianity, reveals God's righteousness. And we said that righteousness is his faithfulness to fulfill his promise, specifically his promise to reconcile humanity to himself and set the world right. And last week he began to deal with Uh, Paul began to deal with this question of what's wrong. What's wrong with us? What's wrong with the world? And what Paul said is that God's wrath, like his righteousness, is also revealed. Right? And we said that that God's wrath was his, um, his just, perfectly just reaction to the defacing, um, destroying, and dehumanizing of his creation. And that this wrath is revealed because of offenses against God and other humans, but remember that we said that these behaviors, these offenses that are behaviors, stem from our being. That is crucial. That it is the, that in Christianity, uh, in the Bible, what we do comes from what we are. 
It's never the reverse. What we do comes from what we are. And Paul said that we, every human, has exchanged the glory of God for something else. That we were made to depend on something, and particularly God, but that now fundamentally we are bent away from Him and committed to placing something other than God in that place of ultimacy in our lives. And the Bible calls that adultery. Sorry, idolatry. It also calls it adultery, but it's a spiritual adultery, and that's beside the point. It is the betrayal of God. It is something that all of us do by nature. And that fact, that this is the common plight of every human on the planet, leads us directly into our passage today. So we're going to be looking at this passage in three ways. There's an outline in your bulletin that's going to help you if you're a note taker. Um, And if you're a Presbyterian and raised in kind of our context, you probably are. You know, that's how we amen is by taking notes and nodding a lot. Uh, for the rest of you, you can just leave it. But we're going to look at this. At, it, we're going to look at the root of our brokenness. We're going to look at the result of our brokenness. And then lastly, we're going to look at how we can reckon with our brokenness. Okay? Let's start with the root by looking at responsive judgment. Listen, if you have already checked out on me because of the last 10 minutes, I do not blame you. I don't. Because what I have done in the last 10 minutes is I have confirmed every fear that you've had about preachers and the church. Except for one, except for money. So here, here it goes. Uh, God asked for 10%. Okay? Now I've confirmed every one of them. But if there is any hope of having any of those things, those fears shift for you, I need you as hard as it is to please check back in. Okay? Look down at verse 24. Paul says... Therefore, God gave them up in their hearts to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Okay, first off, that word, therefore. That word is important for us for no other reason to help us understand context, right? Uh, In this case, Paul is pointing back to something else. Everything he says from verses 24 to 32, he's pointing back. The therefore says, because they exchanged the glory of God and worshipped other things, therefore this. Right? Idolatry leads to everything that we're about to talk about. Looking to something other than God for our worth, our value, our identity, our rightness leads to these things. This verse is God's response to that, right? That next phrase, therefore it says God gave them up. Now this is the first time, if you're, if you're a note taker, you can underline those places in the Bible where it says it. The first of three times that he talks, that God, or that Paul talks about God giving them up. Now, scholars will tell you that what this points to is something that is insanely unnerving. That God, uh, that God, God's judgment of our idolatry, our abandoning him either through religion or irreligion, right? Morality or immorality, because you can do it in any any of those ways. That his judgment of that is not retributive. In other words... He doesn't call down fire from heaven or give you that rash that you hate or uh, take away your job. He gives us what we want. That's what it means when it says that he gives, God gave them over. Think about that for a minute. God's judgment on us isn't to open the ground and swallow us or just to get us. It's to let us go our own way. 
And look, we see this in the Bible from the beginning. The very first story in the Bible after creation is Adam and Eve and everything that goes wrong there, right? They wanted life independent of God. So what did God do? He gave it to them. He said, okay. You're going to have to live out east. Uh, Think about, you know, the Israelites in the wilderness. Wanting to go their own way, follow a path other than God's for them. And then they wondered where he was as things went wrong. Uh, They come into the land and they want a king like the nations. And so God says, okay, you'll get a king just like the nations have. And it goes bad. The purpose of this giving up, though, if we're to understand the Bible as a whole story, the purpose of the giving us up to those things is to show us the emptiness of them and draw us back to him. It's always that. Right? It's kind of like... um, Maybe you haven't had this in your family. Um, I won't say that I did, but maybe. Uh, When one of your children decides on a given day that they've had it and they're going to run away. And they pack a bag full of dolls. And they, hypothetically, and and they start walking away, right? And and they're like, and you go, "Okay, okay. And they get about a block and they go, I do I'll just turn around and come back. Like, uh, the, the doll thing isn't going to work for very long, right? They don't know where they're going and all this stuff. That's the exact same way. It's to draw us back to him. Now, the next phrase, lust of their hearts. That means something different than what we think. Because when you and I hear the word lust, we think sex. And when we think hearts, we think the seat of our emotions, right? Those are the two things that we tend to think. Those are very modern interpretations of those words. Uh, that's born out of our cultural moment. But that is not what is meant when Paul says them. Okay? Lust in the Bible can be sexual, but what it ultimately means is an inordinate desire. A desire that's misordered, out of place. Um, it's, it's not bad in and of itself, but it's out of place and shouldn't be there. Right? And the heart isn't the seat of emotions, it's the core of who we are. So what this is pointing to, the lust of their hearts, is pointing to that hunger that all of us feel that we can't seem to satisfy. That sense in us that if I just had X, I would be satisfied until we get X and it's not enough. I need more. And you know what, you know what I mean. You feel this as much as I do. Nothing ever seems to satisfy us, right? There's never enough of whatever that is for you. Whether it's money, or sex, or power, or love, or even stickers bars. There's just never enough. Never enough to satisfy But the reason for that is because we were made to find satisfaction in God. But because we've rejected him, we're constantly hungering for something to fill a hole that only he can fill. It is an inordinate desire. It isn't to say that that thing is bad that is desired, only that it's misplaced and being used for something it was never made for. And God gives us over to these misordered desires to show us that nothing can satisfy us but him. Lastly, uh, in this phrase is this notion of dishonor, giving us giving them up uh, to the dishonoring of their bodies. We need to understand the Bible the Bible communicates that God is the creator of everything, which means he's the one who wrote the instruction manual. Right? He wrote the owner's manual. He knows how the, the thing is to be used in a way that it's going to be to flourish. 
The Creator determines how something is meant to function. And when we turn away from Him, when we use our bodies in ways that He says they aren't meant to be used, to satisfy those inordinate desires, it actually dishonors what God has made. Not in the sense of like um, bruising God's ego, but literally uh, marring who we are and what we are. He's going to describe a bunch of those ways here in a second. But the point is that we have, when we have inordinate desires, we feverishly feed them. And so in doing so, we dishonor ourselves. Okay? Now, let's look at the terrible exchange. Look down at verse 25. He gave them over because, it says, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator's forever blessed. That concept of exchange is likewise important. It's mentioned another three times in this, or several times at least, in this, uh, this whole chapter. But I think we miss the point. So listen close. You and I exchange, we do not reject. We do not reject, we exchange. Here's what I mean. Some of us here aren't sure what we think about God, Right? If that's you, I'm glad you're here. Like, if, if you're wondering, like, I, don't, I don't really know what I think of God, so we kind of balk at this idea of Paul saying that we worship something else, right? I don't worship anything. But like I said last week, worship doesn't mean a religious service. It means giving something, that place of ultimacy in our life. That is the thing that I'm going to base my worth, my value, my, my meaning on. And all of us do that. Every one of us have that thing or person that has ultimate worth in our lives. And the point is that whatever has that place, whatever that thing is in your life, you will order your life around. It will always be ordered around that thing. So even if you're an atheist, according to that definition, you worship something. You have to. I mean, it's how you're made. Paul is reiterating for us that the giving over to what we, what we want didn't stem from us not being good. Not meeting some generic standard. It comes because we've exchanged God for something else. Listen, I cannot say this enough. Biblically, our behavior comes from our being. Our condition creates our conduct. Not vice versa. The problem with humanity is not that we're bad, but that we're broken. And that brokenness then leads to things that are bad. But, but first and foremost, the problem is we are broken and by nature turned away from God. In the beginning, we, we betrayed him and that betrayal changed everything. Changed us. It changed our very nature. And this is why I say that you can be very religious and still be very far from God. Because some of us in this room use our religion to keep God at arm's distance. I don't need you, God. I've got this. Have you not seen my church attendance? Did you not get the star chart from my Sunday school teacher? I'm good. I don't need your provision. Others of us, though, we don't want him. Not because we think we've got this, but because we know that wanting him will mean that we have to give up on those things that are, 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 we're looking to for satisfaction. It will, be, it will also involve rejecting those desires that rebel against his design. 
Friends, the Bible says that we don't need reforming. We need rescue, right? That we don't need, we don't need a remodel. We need rebirth. The root of our brokenness is the betrayal of God that has changed our very nature. If you get nothing else from this time, please don't walk out of here without having that clear. That is the core of what the Bible says our problem is. Not that we're not good enough, but that we're broken and in need of God to rescue us. Now, let's get to the result the result of brokenness and, and, and this uh, logic that he follows here. These next two verses are going to tempt us to get hijacked from his train of thought. Okay? Again, that is because of the cultural moment that we are in. But we need to stick with uh, what he's saying and, and get what is being said and what isn't. Okay, look at verse 26. Here's the second of God giving us up. Okay? Now, like I said, let's say from the beginning what he's saying and what he isn't. First, Paul is not giving an, um, an individualistic reading of someone's experience. Okay? He's talking globally about humanity as a whole, not about uh, your individual experience. Which is to say, it's not an oversimplified causation. It's not what he's doing. He's talking about humanity as a whole. Humanity's brokenness. Second, though some writers try to soften what Paul says here, um, and, and by that what I mean is they'll, they'll make it dealing with only specific cases or how um, a, a person's denial of what their true self is, the amount of interpretive gymnastics you have to go through to make that work is um, Olympic. It's Olympic. Paul is speaking here in these two verses of male and female homosexuality and is giving it as a specific, poignant example. Example of exchanging God and his design for our own ways. Now, let me speak to some of the details. When Paul talks about natural relations, we have a hard time with that. Because when we say natural, we mean what is natural to our internal experience, right? That's the way we kind of see things. We see natural to be talking about an experiential reality. And so we can be like, well, Paul's not dealing with attractions that have always been there. That must be what, you know, so whatever. Here's the problem. The Bible has no category. And I know this is hard for us because in our culture, this is the only category. The Bible has no category for the individual's experience defining reality. It's God's job. It has no category for that. So that's not what Paul's talking about. In fact, no culture in all of history and across the planet today, except Western culture, has that category. So to impose that on this text just really stinks of cultural imperialism. It's not what he's saying. We may not like what he's saying, but we can't make it something else. Now second, when we come to these verses, we end up thinking that Paul is outdated in his understanding, right? 
And I think we do that because of the notion that Paul wasn't writing in first century Rome. He was writing in like 18th century New England. Right? And we expect him to be, um, you know, uh, locking horns against Hester Prynne. Like that, that's what Paul's doing. And that, that's the culture in which he's engaged in. But listen, Paul used this example for a reason. Because what he's describing was everywhere in Roman society and far more accepted than it is today. But we have this idea, right, that, every, that our culture is progressive and every other culture that doesn't agree with us is regressive. Which, if you think about it, claims that we have a God's eye view on what is and what isn't progressive. That all of that's defined by what we like and what we don't. Frankly, it's arrogance. And it leaves us open to the same criticism that many people have of the Bible. This is an absolute claim. See, for the Bible, when Paul talks about natural, he means what accords with God's design. Reflected in nature. Biological complementarity. That's what he's talking about. And biological complementarity is not up for dispute. This for Paul is one example, one example of humanity's exchange of God for other things. Okay? But, here's the important thing for us to see, for many of us especially. It isn't his only example. It is one example. It is not his only example. Let's look at the rest. Okay? Look down at verses 28 to 32. Uh, because... And and I need you to listen close, because here's where, especially if you're a Christian this morning, you can lose your way in this passage. Because it's easy for us to to kind of read those first two verses, and then kind of read the rest as applying to the same folks that those first two verses is talking about, and miss the fact he's talking again about humanity, not about individuals per se. So what I mean is that Paul is not linking this list with the example of those he's talking about in verses uh, uh, 26 and 27. He's not saying, well, these types of people do these things too, and giving the rest of us a pass. This is about humanity as a whole. He's talking about all of us. And so in this list, you have things like gossip. You have things like envy. You have things like slander and murder. You have hating God. You have deceit. You have arrogance. You have trash talking. That's that boastful thing. I know that's like normal in our culture. Paul lists that. He's got being heartless, which means lacking human affection. He has being disobedient to parents. And then he has being unmerciful. Now, this is not an exhaustive list. But... Man, I would be willing to bet a lot of money there's not a person in this room who can't check at least one of those boxes, right? Anyone ever disobeyed their parents? Thank you. My kids are raising their hands. Thank you. Thank you, because you know you're going to get called out. Only a couple of them did, yeah. Yeah, well. It is safe to bet that there's no one in this room who doesn't have an issue mentioned here. So let me again remind us what the point is. Paul is talking about what our problem is. And every one of these 
behaviors, whether it's greed, lying, slander, arrogance, or what he describes misordered sexuality, stems from the fact that we are by nature bent away from God. They are signs of our brokenness. We are broken, and that brokenness is a result of our betrayal of God, what the Bible calls sin, and it affects everything. Now, I'm not going to go through all of those words. I don't think we have to, but I do want to hit one of them, and it's the last one. The ESV, the the translation I, I read from, translates the word ruthless. It can mean that, but I don't think that's what Paul meant when he wrote it, and especially at the end of this list. Listen, it is easy to read a list like this and get on your moral high horse. Because maybe you're in this room, and, you're, and for you, you're one of those rare people, if they even exist, for whom nothing on this list pertains to you. Right? Or at least you don't think it does. And so the temptation then is to think that if people could just get their acts together, if they could just be like me, they'd be all right. I'm awesome. Right? Paul ends with this word that the ESV says ruthless, but it is best translated as unmerciful. Unmerciful. The the self-righteous person has no need, gives no mercy because they don't see their need for mercy. You know the most merciful person is that you know? It's probably the person who understands their neediness the most. And they are willing to say, I know, I'm not going to say that what's going on in your life is right, but man, I'm sad that you're going through it. Even if it's a mess of your own making. You know why? Because I've made my own messes. The least merciful person you know is the one who gets everything right. Has no understanding why people can't just get their acts together. See, when we, don't, when we believe that we don't need mercy, we don't extend it to others. We don't show compassion on those who struggle. We believe that behaviors are just behaviors and we can just change them. So listen to me, church. Being unmerciful towards broken people shows that you don't think you need mercy. Because you don't think you're broken. And Paul says that is just as bad as everything else he's listed. Those who don't show mercy, it's just a sign of how broken you are. We have to hold the list together. Now, let me speak in a more applied manner if I can. Here's the reality. We tend to place things on different levels that Paul holds together. Every one of the things that he mentions in these verses, 24 to 32, are visceral examples. Visceral examples of humanity's worship of things other than God. Rejecting God's, not just rejecting God, but his understanding of the world, his thoughts on what will flourish us, and going, no, I can do it my way, and I deal with that just as much as you do. But more than that, they're given evidence not only of what has happened, but they are given as evidence of God's already present judgment of our idolatry. That those things, the the greedy, the the haters of God, the disobedient to parents are a sign of God letting us go our own way, doing our own thing. In addition, 
than misordered sexuality. Think about that for a minute. God has let us go our own way. What that means is that Paul is not calling us to look at the behaviors. Not specifically. They are there, but they are there as like signposts pointing to something else. We're to look at the root because the behaviors are evidence of the problem, not the problem itself. Cannot say that enough. Are they a problem? Yes. Can they be fixed apart from the cleansing work of Jesus? No. And so anytime that we begin looking at others, acting towards others, in which we expect them to be able to clean up what's going on in their lives so that Jesus can work in them, you have now put the cart so far in front of the horse, you can't even see it anymore. The whole issue is the root. That does not mean we excuse the behaviors. It means we see them for what they are, and we see them for where they come from. The behaviors stem from our independence from God, and you cannot fix your independence independently. You need a rescuer just like I do. And that is why Jesus came. Because you see, unlike us, he could be perfect and merciful, because being merciful is part of being perfect. It's part of that. God isn't unmerciful. He actually has compassion on us, even though we betrayed him. He has compassion on the mess that we've made and the fact that we're stuck in it. It's compassion on us. And so he came to rescue us from the situation we've gotten ourselves in. Jesus came to live perfectly for us, to die, the, to, die to bear the weight of our betrayal of God, that judgment that, was, that is coming, the judgment that we deserved. And he came to reorder our loves came to make us new. He came to rescue us from our plight. And so friends, when we, when we place our faith in Jesus, we're united to him. That what's true of him becomes true of us. That his, his death for sin becomes ours. His perfect life is ours before God. God is not asking you to change your nature. That would be like asking a fish to start breathing air. They can't and neither can you. He is simply holding out for you the promise. Not just forgiveness. That would be great. But of new life. New life in Jesus. It is a gift that we can't do anything to earn. And because we can't do anything to earn, when we receive it, we can't do anything to lose it. So listen to me. If you're here this morning and and same-sex attraction is reality in life, and maybe you're wondering, maybe you're wondering, maybe you're wondering because of the attitude of the church, attitude of Christians, the characterization you've seen on television probably has more to do with it. That you are somehow further from God than others. Let me hear hear the pastor of this church say, There's nothing wrong with you that's not wrong with me. Nothing. And vice versa, there's nothing wrong with me that's not wrong with you. Same problem. Same Savior. Lastly, I do want to talk about a transforming gospel. Because here's the thing, and here's what gets missed in this so much. The gospel of Jesus Christ saves us from the penalty of sin, certainly. It rescues us from the grip of our brokenness and the future of hell. It does that. But it also saves us from sin's power. 
That it's not just a get-out-of-hell-free card, but an actual newness of life that we are given. See, the problem is that many of us approach these things, anything in those lists, and, you, and I don't care where you're at, maybe you, you hit on the greed thing, or maybe you hit on the disobedient to parents thing, and you go, this is just who I am. And so we raise the question, the question and especially in our culture, can I, can I be practicing these things? Can I be practicing, and especially, if we're being honest, we're going to ask it about those two verses. Can I be practicing homosexual trust in Jesus and a growing Christian? If we're to follow Paul here, listen to me, I know this is hard, but listen, if we're to follow Paul here, we have to ask that same question of everything else in the list. Because they're held together. Can I be a practicing gossip? Practicing slanderer? Practicing unmerciful person? Practicing compulsive liar. Be trusting in Jesus and growing in him without ever addressing those things. Can I? Now, some of you are thinking, Rick, those are not the same thing. Right? Again, those aren't the same thing. Um, we, people don't choose their orientation. I'm not arguing they do. I'm really not. I'm not qualified to make that judgment. But isn't it funny how we assume that people choose the other things in the list to be inclined towards? What if someone came to you and they said they spoke of the fact that they've thought of themselves as better than everyone around them for as long as they can remember? They've just never known a day when they didn't think that they were better than people. Everybody. Does that make their arrogance okay? No, of course not. We would never argue that. But wait, Rick. These folks, maybe I, can't make myself be attracted to the opposite sex. I never said you could, and that's not what this passage is talking about. It doesn't ever make that claim. See, in any other case, anything else in this list, we would see it necessary for transformation to take place, for repentance, and we would be right. We would be right to see that. Right? That doesn't mean perfection, but it does mean that we're seeking to follow Jesus and not just to get that, that get-out-of-hell-free card. The, the, the church, the Christian church, and the, with the presence of the Spirit working in us is a place for transformation and, and discipline and, and, um, and new ways of being. Not just a place for indulgence. So we don't do that with something like same-sex attraction, because we have bought into that, that idea that sexuality is so central to what it means to be human that not expressing it means being less than human. And if that is the case, then Jesus is less than human. And so is Paul. Look, I know there are complexities to this. I know. Like I said, 35, 40 minutes, maybe 45 at this point, not enough time. I would never claim it is. Never claim to answer every question. And I know that there can be a ton of shame associated with this. And I know that the church has messed this up big time. I would simply say that for us in this church, it is okay to not be okay. You don't have to clean up your act to be here to investigate Christianity, even take part in our community. But repentance is not just claiming Jesus. Repentance is turning from the unique ways that we've rebelled against him. It isn't easy. It requires the work of the Spirit. And it is something that we do together. And it is something that, frankly, will never be complete until Jesus returns. And some of you are saying, look, that's easy for you to say, Rick. 
You're right. But I'm not the only one that says it. And so I've got a couple of resources up here that are going to come up on the screen here in a second. Um, that may, Just a couple, because I know you're not going to write down a huge list. But maybe a couple, right? The first one is, is um, livingout.org. It's a resource by Sam Alberry, Single Christian pastor who experiences same-sex attraction but doesn't pursue it. Um, he's got a ton of resources on there that he's winsome and sensitive and, um, and yet very bold. Another is the author Rosario Butterfield, um, who, who's written a couple of autobiographical accounts of her life before and after becoming a Christian that speak into this. I commend both of those to you because I'm, there's no way I'm going to be able to answer questions, every question. But listen, I know this is hard. But if you hear nothing else today, hear this. Because this, this is Paul's point. All of our sin, all of it, no matter what you struggle with, all of it stems from our brokenness. And all of it can find healing in a Savior who loves you, no matter what you struggle with, and gave himself for you. Would you pray with me? Lord, I know that... Uh, I know that for many of us, our ears are rather closed right now. And so I just ask that you would give us grace. I pray for grace for those of us who lean towards the end of the spectrum where we think uh, we've done nothing wrong, that God is, that you are lucky to have us, that you would convince us, convict us, and turn us from our self-righteousness. And for others of us, Lord, who have been convinced that we don't want anything to do with you because we know what will satisfy us, I pray that you would convict us, convince us, and turn us from our seeking of satisfaction apart from you. Not because it's right, though it is, but because it's for our good. Thank you, Lord, that you love us, that you gave us Jesus, and that you bring us new life in him. Propel us from this place into our worship now. For your glory's sake, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.